and obviously I'm a trans woman living in Nigeria, which is like, like it's, it's a crazy navigation. When we are going in desert, we walk for good six hours. My leg was trapped. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lay of the Land. Welcome back to Lay of the Land. In the second part of our conversation on child abuse, we continue the journey with our anonymous guest who demonstrates incredible strength and resilience as they navigate the ongoing process of healing and growth. Their story is a testament to the courage it takes to confront the past and the challenges that persist. We'll delve deeper into the complexities, setbacks, and triumphs that they encounter on their path. So take a moment to join us as we embrace the raw and authentic realities of their ongoing journey, a testament to the human spirit's capacity to persevere. This is the first time in my life that I'm ever speaking up about these things. One, people's reputations. Two, I think I was just scared of people looking at me one way. Right? Three, I didn't want nobody to pity me because in my mind, these things happened, but I took them like a boss. I, your pity is not going to do anything. If anything, it's even going to make me angry because I'll be looking at you like, what exactly is the reason for this particular emotion? Or do I look like I need your pity? I don't even pity myself. Um, because I couldn't seek help. Also because I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I just knew it wasn't right. And I also became my own therapist. I became my own psychologist. And I would talk to myself. Not with words. But I just, you know, actual, like, I'll have actual conversations with myself. I'll try to see from the point of view of my abusers. That, okay, maybe they did this thing because... So it first started out as me making excuses for them that, oh, I'm sure she did it because... So I'm sure he did it because... But then I realized that, one, there's never good, a good excuse for bad behavior. And... Because I've always, you know, felt alone, even in the midst of people. When I started, when I started to identify and understand the things that have happened, I didn't think anybody would get me. Right? I didn't think anybody would get me. I didn't think anybody would understand me enough to really get into the things that I have been through, right? So I had to undergo that healing phase on my own. Um, like, like I said, I'm I'm a very I'm a very forgiving person, and I'm a very happy-go-lucky person. So it also helped the process, right? I started by forgiving these people, right? The ones that I could tell that they hurt me, I did. The ones that I couldn't and they couldn't understand it. You know what? It's all good. But one thing that I tried to do even when I was younger was I tried to stand in the gap for my siblings because the whole abuse thing ended with me. 
I did I never let my mom touch my younger sister. I never let my mom beat my siblings. Did she ever try to? Yes. What would you like to Lots. step in? Yes. I can step in and I'll be like, this thing that you're beating this boy for, is it not much better if you actually tell him with your mouth and express what he has done? So I felt when I was younger that that was the way the world should go. Why do you have to pull out the belt? It's one thing if the child is deliberately trying to get rotten and then you need some ass whooping. It doesn't feel right. And I also knew at the time that I was not a bad child. Right. I was just in a bad home. I knew I was not a bad child. And before I knew that my mom did those things out of frustration, I thought she did them out of wanting me to be good. So I used to say, trust me, all of the beatings and punishments that you've given me, I've not, they've not moved the needle in changing me for Jack. I'm good because I choose to be good, not because of the things that you have done. So that was what I used to say to her then. That beating is not going to stop this boy from being a good person or a bad person. But being able to sit down and explain using your words, emotion aside, let's talk logic. This is what you're doing. Think about it. Is this good behavior? Does it make any sense to you? Would you be happy if someone else did it to you? This is the consequences of this particular thing that you're doing. This is how it's going to hurt this other person. This is how this other person is going to feel about it. Do you still think it's a good thing to do? Um, so I used to, you know, just tell her, it's not about beating. If, it's, if it was by beating, I'd be... I'd be Jesus right now. Like, I wouldn't even be a priest. I'd be holier than a priest. There'd be no sin in me. You'd be walking but, on water. <laughs> like, I'd be walking on water if it was by that. Yeah. Right? But I'm a good individual because I choose to be. Because I understand things. So, yes, I stood in the gap for my siblings. And the healing has still not ended. Right? Every day that passes, I come to terms with certain things. You know, I see people's experiences and I can relate to them, right? I can relate to them. I see people tell stories on social media. I see posts about how this one Igbo woman molested her child. Why there's a need to discuss Igbo women always beating their kids. I'm like, I'm not as a Yoruba woman mm -hmm. to the bone. It's not even about Igbo women. But to be honest, I don't even like to put my mouth in stuff like that because social media has a way of taking what you've said and making it into something else. And I'd rather not just even be in the news for that. True. Like, there's nothing that I would say to you guys that'll make you understand because trust me, I've been there. It's not even about a Igbo, Igbo woman or a Hausa woman thing. It's a, it's an individual thing. If you're a bad person, if you're a weird, if you're a weirdo, if you're a pervert, if you're a pedophile, my mom is not a pedophile. I'm just saying generally, right? If you're a pedophile and all of these things, it has nothing to do with your 
orientation. It's not about race. It's not about tribe. It's about the person, right? But then even the person might also be a product of his own childhood, his own environment. So I'm still on that journey. You know, when I was when I was younger, um, we used to go to Takwa Bay a lot on weekends. And one of my earliest memories from childhood is being on the beach with my parents. And there was this old Baba there who used to always come over. If we brought frozen chicken, he'll help them to get the grill out to do it and stuff. And he was very like down that day. So I remember one of my parents asking him, like, you know, what what's the issue? And he said, um, my son has, he's left the island. He went for the past one week. No one knows where he is, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I've, I'm just worried because he hasn't come back. Lo and behold, that exact same day, around 4 p.m., later in the day, share, this young boy comes back. His dad, I don't know if this Baba was his dad or his granddad, but he was an older family member brings out a belt and beats this boy to the point where the sand just completely turned red. And I was eating a cashew, like the actual cashew fruit at that point in time until today. If I even just smell the smell of cashew, it makes me want to vomit because it brings back that memory of seeing that boy pretty much being beaten to death. When you look at yourself sometimes and you see scars, like the scar you pointed out on your forehead and you're like, my mom did this to me. How, how does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> because of those scars, I had very I had a very serious case of low self-esteem issues and I have some on my body too the thing I, I, there's a lot of shirtless pictures of me on the internet so I, it also took me it, it took so much to be able to get to the point where I can't share those pictures because I'm never going to the pool my friends if I go to the pool, like, trust me, this is how I am till we leave the pool. Like, I'm not taking my shoes off. I'm not taking my shirt off. I'm not getting in the water. It wasn't because I was scared of water. It was because I didn't want people to see my scars. So, in a way, I had to become vulnerable again. Right? Like I said, I built up this wall. So I had to become vulnerable again. There's still that, there's still that front, that whole, you know, don't mess with me. I'm not smiling. Like, but I had to let the walls down for myself. I had to let myself in. Right. I had to first of all rid myself of all the anger because I was really angry. And like I said, so one, it takes a lot to get me angry. Maybe because there was just barely anything anybody could do to match the anger that was inside of me in the first place. Right? So people would do things and I, I just laugh. People were like, 
God, are you crazy? This guy just did this. Oh, yeah, they're just laughing. I'd be like, you don't understand. And I'm laughing because is that all he did? Right? This, I have higher levels of anger inside me. I can't even afford to be mad at this thing that this dude has done. So just let it go. Um, I also had some coping mechanisms. So from that fear of being able to show my scars, it then grew into me getting very conscious about my looks, conscious about my image. Today, when someone compliments me, I, sometimes I don't even believe them. I say, oh, you look good. I, I, I'm like, stop playing. <laughs> but, but other days, I embrace it. So I had to, I had to put things in place to help me feel better, help me look better. One of my uncles, I had really weird teeth growing up, and I can't remember what the conversation was. One of my uncles said, "Oh, if I had your teeth, I'd kill myself." It stung, and it flew away, but it never really left. Because I just made a mental note that when I'm able to afford it, I'm going to go to the dentist and fix my teeth. So I went to the dentist and I fixed my teeth. I couldn't smile in pictures. But when I fixed my teeth, I could smile in pictures. Then I went and got a tattoo beside my scar. Um, I went and got a tattoo beside my scar. And the meaning of the tattoo or the significance of the tattoo is something that is almost a reminder. It's a, remind, it's a reminder that you know, God actually loves me. And you know, there's this guy in the Bible who was one of the most flawed humans, but God literally called him the apple of his eyes, right? Like, if God can love this guy, with all of his flaws, with all of the things that he has done. Who am I? So I put it there beside that scar to always remind myself. So when I look in the, in the mirror, I don't see that scar anymore. I see the reminder that this is who I am and these scars don't matter. So I don't even care about these scars no more. And that's when I knew that I had started healing quite nicely and much better than I thought that I was healing. So um, there's something that you mentioned, right? You said that your mom and your grandma were actually very alike. And childhood experiences define a good amount of the people that we are and the people that we become. Do you know much about your mom's childhood and her life, what what could have possibly made her the person that she was towards you? Yes. She never, she never really... She tells these stories from an angle of... From an angle of how she struggled to raise us not having to depend on our new husband, having to build a life for herself because she doesn't want her kids 
to grow up how she grew up. But she looked at it from the angle of poverty, not from the angle of the abuse, because she also suffered abuse from her mom, a lot of physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse from her dad and other people. Right. So maybe that's how she grew up to be the kind of person that she was. She's changed now, but there's still elements of those things. And her change started the day I told her what she did to me. Right. And I know things must have, I know she must have thought about it and had conversations with herself and, you know, also tear her own walls down and put her pride aside to come to apologize to say, you know what, I actually, I'm sorry about what I've done. It wasn't from a place of malice. It wasn't because I wanted to. It was because I was changed by my own experiences. Right. So yes, a lot of a lot of my mom, uh, a lot of her, was born out of her own experiences too. How she grew up. Sometimes I worry that I'm going to end up like her, but I also tell myself that the difference between the both of us is she did not know what she was doing, and she did not know what it is that she was going through. But I do, right? And I also know that I don't have to take it. I also know that that, I, that this person gives me shit does not mean I have to give every other person shit, right? Um, I've always tried to be... And my mom wasn't close to her family. She wasn't close to her siblings. They are now, right? And I would give it to myself. And I think... I think God gave me the grace to be that bridge between her and her siblings because she never wanted me around her siblings. But every time I would run from home, I would run to her siblings. Right? And then, from not talking to your sister for two or three years, and then you guys are talking once a month because my son is there. And then, you guys now have a group chat. You have a WhatsApp group where you guys are posting banter and, you know, bringing issues to the table and everybody's talking about it, right? I remember calling a family meeting at the time. I reported her. Like, this woman keeps saying I'm staying away from home. This is the reason why I'm staying away from home. You don't want me to, you know. I didn't talk about the abuse. I spoke about it because I didn't even know it was abuse. I spoke about it from the angle of her not wanting me to do the things that I like to do with my life. Like, you don't always have to impose what you want on me the whole time. You're not going to live my life for me. I did engineering because of my stepdad. I come from a long line of engineers, successful engineers. So I am naturally expected to be the one that would you know, carry on the mantle. Uh, I do like engineering. I know engineering. I didn't used to go to class because there was nothing that my lecturers would teach me that I had not already learned from my stepdad. And I was learning practical stuff. My lecturers were teaching me it, board and you know, whiteboards and markers. But I was, like, doing it. 12 years old, I'm preparing, like, mega generators and all that. 
but I just did not like it. And then he felt, she felt disappointed about the whole thing. And stepped out, felt disappointed about the whole thing. Then I went back and I went to do something else. And then one day I decided, you know what, I'm going to embrace my creative side. I want to be a writer. She was like, you know. So I reported her for that. That was the first family meeting ever. And it wasn't even because of all the other issues. It was because she didn't want you to become a writer? It was just because she just did not want me to become a writer. Mm. Right. Um, I want to get into your relationships now because I understand you're married now. Yeah. Um, so I want us to speak about how you got to that point where you could forge such a relationship after all the trauma. But before that, you said you were pretty much your own psychologist, your own psychiatrist. Have you at all seeked any professional help or is that something that hasn't come yet? Or is it something you even want to do? One time, I was I I I was going through something that was more than I could handle, considering the things that I have handled. Right, this one was more than the things that I could handle. So I reached out to I reached out to I'm not going to say their name. So I reached out to this um, organization that helps with mental health and all. And then I had a conversation with them. It wasn't really helpful. Spoke with pastors and the conversation will end with, you need deliverance. Like, you guys just don't get it. And then one day I was watching The Joker. The one with... Um, the last Joker movie where the guy went through everything he had gone through in his life and even the system wasn't helping and then in the end I think at some point he cancelled his drugs that was that was using to cope and then in the end he was assigned to another um, psychiatrist and I think the woman asked him in the end so how are you and the guy was like like you still don't get it, right? And I watched that movie and I cried, right? Because I don't cry. I cried because I I was like, God, there's no better way to let me know that I am not crazy than this movie I just saw because they just don't get it, right? They just do not get it. Something happened and I ended up in the church for that the counseling unit. And after going back and forth, and this guy said, ah, okay, you know what? First of all, I think if you really need to give your life to Christ. <laughs> Religious values and professional help can sometimes collide when addressing issues of abuse. It's a complex intersection where individuals seeking support may encounter conflicting beliefs and practices. Unfortunately, our guest's experience with pastors who suggested only deliverance without providing appropriate professional assistance highlights a common challenge faced by survivors. The clash between religious teachings and the need for trauma-informed care can create barriers to healing. 
nobody really yeah. gets the picture. I was watching, uh, this was like two or three years ago or four years ago, one of these DC animations. It was about a superhero named Starboy that was from the future. And there was this other girl who was from the present. Starboy wasn't crazy. He was just from the future. So he had seen things that people had not seen. He was saying things to people that did not make sense. But nobody understood that he was just from the future. And so they labeled him as a, men- as a mentally unstable person. Then this other girl who was already, you know, known to suffer from um, mental disorders. She could relate to his men. She could relate to the mental illness part of things, right? But even she couldn't understand his story because when he was explained to her, she was like, "They don't know what it means to be mentally unstable." And then what I got out of it was, this guy is not even mentally unstable. He knows what he's saying. You can relate to the fact that, oh, he has some mental illnesses, but he doesn't even have mental illness. Or you see it as he has a mental illness because you have a mental illness. Yeah. So, a lot of people just know the pen and paper aspect of mental illness and helping people with mental issues and trying to help people uh, get better mental health. But they really don't get it. And I'm no expert, but... One thing that I have picked up on is um, clearly you still suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder to a certain extent. You know, for example, you mentioned that if someone is in a room and they say, um, oh, where's my charger or whatever? I haven't found my charger. Immediately, you'll be looking like the guilty party because it's eating you inside. Oh, there was something that also happened that made that particular, you know, theft situation worse. I was living with my aunt. And we went visiting and the iPhone 6 just came out at the time. So we're in this guy's house. Cool guy. I was young. And then all of a sudden, this guy started looking for his phone. And we searched everywhere in the house. I found some time, the guy was like, you know what, maybe I'll just find it. So I was I don't know why nobody thought of calling his phone. So I said, oh, why don't you call the phone? And then he called the phone and the phone was in my bag. Right. I swear on my life, I did not touch that phone. If you did, I mean, you wouldn't say why right. didn't you call it. Yeah. Trust me. I did not, I not, I did not touch that phone. I didn't, I don't steal. Somebody put that phone in my bag. We were just three people the owner of the phone, and then me and my family member. I stopped going out to this person after that because I felt bad about how it made me look. Yeah. But beyond how it made me look, it did worse to the guilt that I have been carrying right from when I was a child. I just, I did not think I could handle it anymore. And, you know, even down to the, 
even down to the psychiatrist and the psychologist and the therapist that don't get you. All everybody does is project themselves. So many people just hear, but they don't listen. Yeah. They don't they don't they don't see beyond what they know. They don't see beyond their own experiences. And sometimes they hear people's experiences and don't believe that someone can actually live through those experiences. So sometimes they think you're exaggerating. Sometimes they think you're lying. Sometimes they think you're talking too much. When all this person is trying to do is just, you know, I'm just trying to let it out. After a while, before I stopped talking to anybody at all, it just became easier for me to actually talk about what I was feeling. Like, I will tell you the things that I'm going through, not because I'm wanting a solution from you, not because there's anything that you say to make me feel better, just because I would feel better just saying it, right? That, okay, you know what? I've put it out there. So this balloon that has been disinflated isn't as inflated as in anymore, right? And that's how it's been for me. I don't know if my approach to healing is the right one, but then I want to believe that there are different strokes for every folks. Everybody's path is different. The way you treat this person is different from the same way you treat this person, especially because people have different orientations, different environments, different upbringings, different stories, different levels to the things that they've gone through. Right. But it'd just be nice for people not to assume, you know. It'd be nice for people not to project. Let's speak about you getting married and all of that. Um, with all of the trauma from your childhood, I guess it wasn't that easy to get into such a committed relationship. Yeah. Um... I think I got into many of the relationships that I did because I wanted to have a friend. Yeah. Right. That's we'd be happy to sleep with each other. And they would be in love. And I I would assume that I was in love, but I wasn't really. I just wanted a friend, right? Um, so it was really hard for me. I was emotionally not there. I wanted to. She get. I wanted to. None of my exes till tomorrow can ever come out and say I was a bad person to them. Because like, I've always been a sweet guy. Right? I mean, that's what they all say. <laughs> I've always been a sweet guy, but it just didn't work out because I just had so many demons I was fighting. The ones who I liked enough to actually, you know, explain wh- why I was the way I was. They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. So they just left. I was inside about it. I was like, I saw it coming. Like, I don't think you understand it. But it got to a point where I needed to stop. I needed to deliberately work on being a better person and not let my whole life revolve around how I grew up. Mm. So, it took 
consistent intentionality on my own part to actually be good. And and I think that's why uh, my last relationship before I got married really, really, really hurt me so much because it was during that period that I started realizing things that have happened to me and that I now decided to be deliberate about my actions, deliberate about my disposition to certain things. I started getting deliberate about not being a temporary person because everything was temporary from growing up. Right. It was was in that relationship that I started to see people beyond their flaws because before then I would look at my mom and see that person that hurt me. I would look I wouldn't like I wasn't seeing someone that could be my friend. Mm. I wasn't seeing someone I could be uh, someone I could have a heart to heart with. I was just seeing my abuser. Right. So when I'm with this person and this person does something I just unconsciously hold on to that one thing that they've done. I wouldn't hate them, but that would be the label that I'll just create for them. And so, when she broke up with me, it just felt like all of, all of, it felt like all of the work that I put in at the time was just all a waste because I thought, okay, you know what? This could actually be the one, not in terms of getting married to but maybe the one person that I could be vulnerable to the least with but it didn't work out she wanted something else but I took my learnings from it and I got better that's it um although I didn't even tell I didn't I didn't tell this person these these things that I went through growing up but I'd already made myself vulnerable. So when I met my wife, I told her exactly how it was. Like, this is how I grew up. These are the things that I went through. Right. And this is me. I will make mistakes. But just know that my mistakes are not me. I am striving every day to actually be better. So I need you to be patient with me. Right, just I am a work in progress. Well enough, she had the direct opposites of a childhood. The first time I went to their house, I craved that love that I felt in that home. I was like, God, this is how I want my family to be. Right, so she's the direct opposite of that. So sometimes. I'm never excited about special days. Yeah. Birthdays. What is a birthday? Right? Christmas. What was Christmas? I had Christmases growing up, but I didn't have Christmas because it was not Christmas to me. It was just another day of regular suffering. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. So when she when she sometimes can wrap her head around why 
why are you not happy that everybody here is singing happy birthday for you? I'm like, it's just birthday. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you just can't fathom why I am how I am. But like I said, I'm a work in progress. Nobody. I've still not found that one person that would actually understand. Right. But the patience that I get from the other party is what makes it easy. Your biological father, you said you've just started having a relationship with him. Um, what's that been like for you? Weird. <laughs> really weird because when I was going to get married, um, my in-laws and the tradition is that they deal directly with the father, not the stepfather, who's been in the picture the whole time, not the mom who's done all the work, but the dad himself. I tried to steer the whole conversation towards my step-parents, but they weren't having it. So I had to reach out to my dad. Now, before I did that, I tried to... Um, I tried to talk to him. I tried to really understand his perspective. Okay, why did you guys, you know, why did you guys get divorced and all of that? Or he said he's just been really ashamed about the whole thing and how he handled his relationship with me. So he wasn't sure how to face me. But I spoke with him. I got to know him as a person who also embraces his own mistakes and he reaches out every now and then he reaches out he asks after my family he talk he wants me to come around he wants to come around and all of that but baby steps gradual steps messed up right but I don't even hold it against him anymore so maybe we'll be better friends in the future but right now, we are cool. We went from we've we've gone from negative to zero, and then maybe when I start getting to like the plus and the positive bit of things. So we're currently now on zero. Zero is I have no resentment. I don't hate you. You are just there, right? When you call to check on me to know how I'm doing, it's fine. I'll call to check on you to know how you're doing. But maybe I'm going to care beyond that tomorrow. But right now, I just acknowledge you as a human being. That's part of my life. Do you have any kids yet? One. How old? Eight months and three weeks. Congrats. Thank you. What, what's it like being a father now? It's the best thing ever. Like, I, I have so much love inside me to give. And I'm happy to pour that love into him. Right. I didn't, I didn't have anybody do that for me. Right. I didn't have anybody do that for me. And I don't want to be like my parents. So I try every day to not be like my parents, to be there, to be intentional about spending time, to not get carried away with work or my personal ambitions. I'm a very ambitious person, but I also understand that family is everything. I didn't have family. I just had people here and there. But I want him to have a family and grow up better than I did. Like I said, I look at my wife's family, and that's the kind of family I want to 
have an emulate. So luckily for me, I have some things I can, I have a page I can borrow things from and apply them to mine. As we come to the end of this powerful two-part podcast conversation, we're reminded of the profound significance of discussing and addressing the realities of child abuse. Through the brave testimony of our guest, we've witnessed the immense challenges faced by survivors and the lasting impacts of abuse. This conversation serves as a catalyst for change, shedding light on the prevalence of child abuse not just in Nigeria, but worldwide. It underscores the critical need for increased awareness, education, and support systems to protect vulnerable children and provide healing opportunities for survivors. By continuing these conversations, we commit ourselves to creating a safer and more compassionate world where the voices of survivors are heard, their pain is acknowledged, and their journey towards healing is embraced.